passage this morning as well. As is our custom, we will read the text one more time, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God for his help, and, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Romans 3, verses 1 to 8, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And the response comes back, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, Paul goes on into this sort of uh, wandering series of, of questions, and, and it's almost as though he's having a dialogue with a Jewish person who's arguing with him. You don't hear the Jewish person's side of the argument. You just hear Paul's response. Um, on some of the questions. Others of them, it's like, oh, no, that's from being asked from the Jewish perspective. And that's what makes this passage so particularly challenging. But to begin with, Paul says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he goes on from there. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? That good may come, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's, pa- let's pause for a moment and ask God to help us. Lord, we just say thank you so much for this hard text. Father, we are grateful that you speak to us in a manner that is perfect. Your word is perfect, and the way you communicate with your people is perfect, and you do all things to your own glory. As we wrestle with these difficult texts, Lord, we are tempted to ask, why couldn't you say things in a more simple manner? Indeed, Lord, I pray this morning that as we gather together to consider this passage one more time, that you would open our eyes to understand how you call us to grow as a result of wrestling with hard texts. God, our prayer this morning is that your spirit would illuminate the passage before us, that you would give us eyes to see and to behold great and marvelous things in your word. But I guess, Lord, our first prayer this morning is that you would fire and temper our hearts with the courage necessary, the discipline necessary to wrestle with difficult things in your word. Lord, let that be the way you mold and shape us today. We do long to see you. But we must be reminded that at times you dwell in unapproachable light. And we must pursue you as you have pursued us. God, mold and shape our hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps one of the most famous speeches ever given in all of church history were these words spoken by Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. As he concluded his speech, which is famously known as the Here I Stand speech, they were demanding an answer regarding whether or not he would recant on some of the statements he had made, notably some of the publications that he had written denouncing 
the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church, various practices that were observed by the Roman Catholic Church. And they said, we just want a clear answer from you. Do you or do you not recant? To which Luther gives this concluding statement. Since your most serene majesty and your highness requires of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to this council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and into inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from the Holy Scriptures or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text that I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his own conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now that translation of Luther's speech may sound slightly different than what you recall. It's a more recent translation from the history of the Reformation of the 16th century. It's translated by David Dundas Scott. But what's striking to me as I look at this uh, translation is the way in which God's word had so totally captured Luther's imagination, so totally dominated his spirit, that when he responds to this request from the council to recant, his response is grounded not only in his conscience, he's not only speaking about his morality or his conscience, but most profoundly, Luther is speaking to the liberty of his will. He makes the statement, he says, if my judgment, that is my human capacity for reasoning, is not brought into subjection to God's word, if I will not be convinced or persuaded from scripture, he says, I neither can, he's speaking of an inability, I I couldn't possibly, there isn't the freedom there for me to recant, but then he goes on to say, and I I will not, he says, I can't and I won't. And he's speaking there to the freedom or the liberty of his will. And he is saying that he is so wrapped up in what God's word has said that even though they are threatening him with his life, that they're on the verge of condemning him as a heretic with the punishment that is assigned to heretics, notably torture and execution. In the face of all of that, Luther says, I won't recant unless I'm convinced from Scripture. My question this morning for you and me if we were confronted with that same dilemma, if we were presented with that same kind of challenge of being threatened with our lives in the face of rejecting the authority of Scripture, would we hold true to God's Word in the way that Luther did and in the way that so many other saints before Luther have done? This is an important question for us to ask this morning because What I really want us to dwell on from this text in Romans chapter 3, Paul makes this statement. He says, what advantage does the Jew have? What advantage uh, is the value of circumcision? And his response is, much. He says, there is much advantage. Why? Because the Jews, as the people of God, he goes on to explain, were entrusted with the oracles of God himself. They were given the scriptures. This is the the books of the Old Testament, all the way 
you know, the whole Old Testament before the coming of Christ, this is what they had. And Paul's statement is, what advantage does the Jew have? He says they have much advantage in every way. They have much advantage in every way because they've been given the scriptures. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to step back out of the text for just a moment, and I want us to wrestle with that question for ourselves today as Baptists, as Christians here together. Our church has been given the Word of God. We've been given the Scriptures. To put it in the language that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 3, we have the oracles of God. What advantage does that give to you and me? What does it mean for us having the oracles of God to say that we have much advantage and in every way. That's what I want us to look at this week. And I would answer this morning that in having the word of God, the advantage and the blessing that comes from hearing God speak lies in three activities that we are called by God to do in response to having received his word. Number one, cherish God's word. Number two, wrestle with the meaning of God's word. And number three, believe. Believe what God says in his word. Last week, I tried to lead us through an exposition of this text and how Paul's argument, how his train of thought flows. We were trying to get inside of Paul's head, so to speak, to think Paul's thoughts after him. Really, we were trying to think God's thoughts after God, but Paul is the human agent that has written here. And so we're trying to understand Paul's argument. We're trying to follow God's train of thought, his argument. And we heard behind Paul's arguments the words of some of his objectors, the Jews, and we also saw how Paul answered them. We tried to see then how this paragraph fits in with the overall purpose of his letter. So I'm not going to repeat all of that here for you this morning. And if you're not sure exactly what we're talking about this morning, I'd invite you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. But this morning, I want us to wrestle now with the implications which are there for us. Now having been, received, having been given and having received God's word, how should we live in response to that? And I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to begin to wrestle with the answer to this question according to what Peter says. In this particular passage, as you're flipping to 2 Peter 3, in this particular passage, I found this to be, personally, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture anywhere in the book of Romans. Other scholars have said it's one of the most challenging passages of Scripture in the New Testament as a whole because at different moments, Paul is asking a rhetorical question, and at other times, he is He is giving you the Jewish question, and it's a series of questions back and forth, and at some points, Paul is responding to the Jewish question with a definitive answer, and so you're trying to wrestle with all of the implication, and in both of these questions back and forth, you're only really hearing one side or the other of the argument. You're not hearing the full exposition, the full response, and so you're wrestling with all of this, and you're trying to come to an understanding of it, and I just realized that in this moment, this is an incredibly hard passage of Scripture, And I asked for you to pray for me last week as I was wrestling through it, trying to understand how to preach it. And so the question is, then, why does God speak to us in a way that is so hard? Why not just speak simply, plainly, easily, we might say, easily? And to begin to address that, I want you to look with me here 
at 2 Peter chapter 3. And I think the Apostle Peter gives us a bit of an explanation as to what we're to do with difficult texts. Looking, therefore, at uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, I, wanna, I want you to pick it up in verse 15. The Apostle Peter says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. He makes this statement, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Having gone through this text last week, we all can say, Peter, amen. There are some things Paul writes that are hard to understand. But he makes this other statement, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now just pause right there a moment. Peter just referred to the letters that Paul is writing to the churches as scripture. He doesn't start off by calling them scripture. He says, Paul has written to you with the wisdom that God has given to him. And he says, unstable and ignorant individuals take the things that Paul writes and they twist them to their own destruction just like they would do with other scripture. In saying that they would do this with other scripture, Peter is indirectly claiming that these letters that Paul has written are scripture. He puts them on the same category, which is a mystery unto itself. The first century church had an understanding that as the apostles were writing, whether it was Peter or John or in this case Paul, as they were writing these letters to the churches, the churches understood this was the word of God. Sure, Paul is writing it, or Peter is writing it in this other case, or Luke or Matthew or whoever, But though it is being written by human authors, God is speaking through these letters. And of course, the church in the first century then understood that, recognized that, and sought to preserve it, which is how we arrive at our New Testament, our whole canon of Scripture today. That's a mystery unto itself. But look what he says. He goes on. He says, You therefore, beloved, verse 17, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose, notice this, your own stability. Now, I want to note a couple of things then from this passage. First off, Paul is writing with the wisdom that God has given to him, which means that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing under the inspiration of God. God has given him this wisdom. And therefore, Peter says that Paul's writings are in the category of other scriptures. But number three... Peter says that what Paul has written is, he says, hard to understand. So God is our perfect communicator, and because he is perfect in every way, and he doesn't ever do anything in a bad way, we have to wrestle with the fact then that God has spoken some things in a hard way, and that in doing so, that is for his glory and our ultimate good and our ultimate blessing. We have to just come to terms with that. Number four, Peter then goes on recognizing that what Paul says is hard, and he exhorts the church that he's writing to to count 
the Lord's patience as salvation. Now, previously in the letter, 2 Peter, Peter has spoken about how there are going to be scoffers and individuals who criticize Christians. And he has said that one of the things that they're going to say is they're going to make fun of Christians because our Lord tarries. He takes so long before he returns. And, and they'll, they'll sort of ask this sort of joking, mocking, criticizing question, oh, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue on as they always have for the last thousand of years. And so Peter's exhortation is God is patient and his patience is meant to result in your salvation. And he starts off this last concluding paragraph by saying, count, reckon the delay of God's return, Jesus' return. Reckon that patience as your salvation. That's how he says you need to reckon it and understand it. And so Peter is urging his readers to see God's delay through what Peter himself is writing in Scripture. So we understand the delay of God through God's Word. And all of this points back to the fact that it is doing this that we will have stability. This idea of stability is mentioned on a couple of different points just in this passage alone. Look at what, Paul, what, what Peter says. He says uh, at the tail end of verse 16, he says there are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable, he calls these individuals ignorant, and then he says they're ignorant and they are unstable. He says they twist these things to their own destruction. So ignorance goes with instability. And an ignorant and unstable person does not wrestle with the truth of Scripture, but begins to distort the truth of Scripture. And this results in their ultimate destruction. And then the opposite is encouraged for the believer. Peter says to the believer, you therefore, knowing this, knowing the hard, difficult passages of Scripture and knowing that the ignorant and the unstable twist those passages of Scripture to their own destruction, he says, you therefore take care that you are not carried away with their error. And he says, lose your own stability. What is the value then, coming back to the question, what is the value then of wrestling with hard texts? Why does God speak to us at times in a difficult way? Precisely so that we will wrestle with it. And it is in the struggle of wrestling with God's word and trying to understand these difficult passages that God blesses us by bringing us to a point of stability where we're not rocked, as Paul would say in Ephesians, by every wind and wave of doctrine. We are called then to see in the difficult texts that God speaks a blessing from the Lord. It's not easy to wrestle with these texts, but there is a blessing in it. If we wrestle with it, we have a greater confidence in our faith and we have a greater stability. And that stability will hold up in the midst of the storms and the trials of life. If you have an individual then who does not take care 
to be committed to Bible study, then you have an individual who is contributing to their own spiritual instability. And that individual will be rocked by the circumstances of life at some point in time. And the outcome of that, what we are seeing, and as I mentioned last Sunday, what we are seeing in widespread numbers today within the evangelical church in the West is this growing trend of deconstruction and individuals now calling themselves ex-evangelicals where they no longer consider themselves Christians. They're picking apart their faith. They are twisting and distorting and breaking, not that the scriptures can be broken, but they're trying to twist and distort and break apart what they've been taught as a means to justifying walking away from God's word. This, for us, needs to be an important call not to walk down the path of questioning everything for the purposes of jettisoning the truth, but to wrestle with the text in humble submission before it, not so that we can shed our faith, but so that we will grow and have a greater confidence and a greater stability in our faith. Why does Paul write this, these eight verses right here in chapter 3? Is it to drive your preacher nuts with hours of laborious and intense study? Yes. (laughs) Amen. And by extension, why does Paul put this passage here in this text? Is it to drive you nuts with hours of intense and laborious study? And this is when the pastor gets to turn the tables. Yes, amen. In all of this, we need to hear a call to cherish God's word, to love it. That's what I want us to begin with this morning. You're called to cherish God's word, church. Many Christians have learned to put knowledge ahead of love. That is to say that when we approach God's word all too often within particularly academic settings, we want to approach God and we want to say, I will love you just as soon as I will understand you. And therefore, if I don't understand it, if it doesn't make sense to me, I am going to withhold faith. I'm going to withhold trust. And that has never been the way of God's word. God calls you first to love Then he begins to explain, but at certain points in time, he never explains, and he calls you ultimately to trust him. I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah, and for any individual who's listening who might be tempted to call themselves an ex-evangelical or who might think of themselves as going through this process of deconstruction, I want you to understand this is not a recent phenomenon as though these types of things just started happening here in the 21st century. And I would draw your attention to one really great prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 15, the prophet Jeremiah says to God, your words were found. He says, I heard your word. And he says, I devoured it. And your words became to me a joy and a delight to my heart. I loved your word. It was wonderful, he says. I enjoyed it. I loved it. I embraced it. It was great. He goes on to say that in Having your word and following your word, it led to certain transformations in my life. He says in verse 17, I didn't sit in the company of revelers. I didn't rejoice with the mockers. He says, I sat alone because your hand was upon me. You had filled me with indignation. 
And he goes on then to say, why is my pain unceasing? Why is my wound incurable and refusing to be healed? He poses this question to God. He says, will you, God, be to me like a deceitful brook and like waters that fail? I had the promise of God's word, Jeremiah says. I loved it. And then walking with God by faith led me down a path where now I feel hurt, I feel pain, and I'm questioning, and I'm questioning you, God. And God comes back, and he doesn't say, oh, Jeremiah, I'm so sorry to hear that. Let me explain to you how the whole world is going to unfold. Let me explain to you all of the specific moments of history that are about to take place. And and let's just walk through it so you can understand exactly how your ministry is going to result in the untold blessing of everyone. God doesn't say anything like that. God's response, he comes back to Jeremiah and he says, If you come back, I will make you like a fortified wall of bronze and you will be my spokesperson. No further explanation is offered. None is ever forthcoming. And one of the things we understand from the life of the prophet Jeremiah is that he does come back to God. He keeps preaching. He keeps trusting the Lord. His life ends up where he is dragged off into, he's kidnapped and dragged off into captivity down to Egypt. We're never told that he comes back from Egypt. We don't know what becomes of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is wrestling and struggling with God and ultimately he makes the decision to surrender in faith to the Lord. Now, I say all that, but you and I actually have the advantage of the last 2,000 years. What did Jeremiah's ministry accomplish? What did the ministry of the apostles, many of whom were martyred and killed for their faith, what did it accomplish? You and I actually have the hindsight of the last two millennia. We can answer that question. The impact of preaching God's word, the impact of holding forth God's truth, no matter how difficult it is and no matter how costly it is for those who embrace it and who cherish it and walk with it, it is profound. And receiving the word of God with all of its difficulty and with all of its complications, the truth is that civilization, society, you and me, we have grown intellectually, we have grown morally, and we have grown spiritually. The historical impact of wrestling with the scriptures and the impulse that it gives us to try to understand the thoughts of God, it's enormous. It has radically impacted history and culture, world civilization. Wherever Christianity has spread, the Bible has spread, and with the spreading of the Bible has also spread the impulse to translate that Bible into other languages. We're all aware of the ministry of Roman and Vicki Gehring trying to translate the scriptures into the language of the Hazara people in Afghanistan. Over a million people who have never had God's word in their heart language. We are working right now as a church to see that happen. We're wrestling to put that together. And I want you to just think about Afghanistan as a country for a moment. It is largely third world. I mean, the majority of the country, they don't really have running water, electricity, these kinds of things, let alone the internet or email or the hassle of their phone vibrating in their pocket because they got a text message. This is not Afghanistan. But now step back and think about this. All the world was like this at one point in time. All of the world was backwards just like that. Backwards, not that they're backwards, but we are looking back at a 
a civilization that we all once were. What led to the advance? It was the word of God. It was the scriptures themselves. Scriptures have resulted in the growth of culture. They have result, it has brought about the advance of societal advancement, institutional advancement, and it has all ultimately brought about scholarship and technology, if you stop to think about it. Wherever Christianity has spread, wherever the gospel has been proclaimed, the Bible has been carried with it, and with that Bible comes the desire to translate it. So you have a bunch of people who go into a culture and they begin to learn the language of that culture to develop an alphabet. And with that development of the alphabet then begins the process of translating the Bible. But something else happens as well. We begin to learn to read and to write. Because we're trying to translate that Bible into another language, we want to have those people have the ability to read the Bible. So then we start to begin educational programs, kindergarten Learn your ABCs. Learn how to read. Learn how to write. Why? Because we want you to be able to read the Bible for yourself. And of course, with that then comes a rise within the culture. More and more as people learn to read and write, they learn to communicate. They learn to read other writings that are available to them. And the entire culture begins to shift. With the introduction of a Bible translation comes the arrival of elementary schools and kindergartens. And with that comes the advancement of society. Within every generation, there is this ongoing impulse then to teach young people how to read so that they can have direct access to God's word. And that goes with the impulse to fund schools, to plant churches, to establish things like libraries. We want individuals to learn to read together, and all of this is brought about by a group of people who are committed to reading God's word together. And this results in the advance of different institutions. From the establishment of libraries, eventually, sooner or later, we have the rise of colleges and universities. And within these colleges and universities, there is this desire to continue growing in knowledge. Sure, we want to grow in our knowledge of God's word. But beyond that, we also want to grow in all areas of knowledge because Christianity is the faith of learning and education. And so with the rise of this desire to read the Bible and to read it in our own language, we have the rise of institutions committed to scholarship and committed to study. And guess what else? We start to study other things like germ theory, like bacteria, like biology, like chemistry. Eventually, sooner or later, all of this gives way to modern inventions such as the telephone, the automobile, the advent of the internet. All of this rises first and foremost out of a desire to introduce the scriptures into a culture. It brings reading, and from there, God begins to bless. You look back at the last 2,000 years. You go back to the first century, and you understand that there were a limited number of books because a thing like a printing press had never been invented yet. There were a limited number of people that had learned to read and to write. And today, we are radically altering language basically every second with the abbreviations we invent for our text messaging. Now, some of us, we can look at the modern abuse of the English language with some degree of criticism. 
But just think about how ubiquitous, how taken for granted it is that all of us in the West can read and write. And, and if you think that this is just an ordinary, everyday run of the thing, consider the ministry of our brother and sister to the people of Afghanistan and what they're struggling for today to have there. God's word makes a dramatic impact. It changes things. Could Jeremiah have known all of this when he said, your words were found by me and I loved them, but will you be to me like brooks that falter, like a deceitful stream of water? No, Jeremiah couldn't have known all of that. His knowledge was checked at the door and he proceeded to proclaiming the word of God out of love. And for you and me today, it is easy to look at intellectual achievements and to make academia and scholarship an idol. But what we have been given today in terms of academia and scholarship was a blessing that first came to us by God, by first loving God's word and making the simple commitment to learn to read so we can read scripture. That's where the blessing begins. But now, having learned to read, we are introduced to a world full of hard texts. And this is where we must now begin to wrestle. There are two things that are very concerning to me as your pastor. Number one, the fact that so many of us do not have a daily quiet time in the Word of God where we sit down and we read a chapter out of the Bible or a paragraph out of the Bible and we pray and we wrestle and we meditate upon the meaning of that text, what it might, be, what it might have meant to the first century and what God intends to speak to us today through that same passage. All too often what I find is everybody has their cell phone and they've got their favorite Bible devotional app on their cell phone and they will pull up the latest book excerpt from Max Lucado or from John Piper, and they will read on this little app on their phone one of these little devotional thoughts that was written by one of the famous pastors of the 20th or 21st century. This has led, as I'm sure you all well know, to a rise in the cult of personality, where our understanding of our walk with Jesus now is going to come through an individual whom we've never met who preaches either in, you know, Missouri. Is that where he's from? That's not where he's from. Minnesota, thank you, thank you. John Piper, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota. Or from Max Lucado, who's in San Antonio, Texas. See, I know that one. (laughs) So our understanding, and, and it's true for me here as well. I only want to go to church when I know Pastor Josh is preaching. It isn't the word of Pastor Josh. It is the word of God. We are blessed with three pastors here of, I am just one of them. We all have different skills and different abilities. Some of us are more dynamic than others. Some of us are more long-winded than others. Thanks a lot, you guys. They've all learned. 
whether I'm preaching, whether Pastor Ryan is preaching, whether Pastor Tyler is preaching, it's the Word of God that's speaking. Why is it, and I know why it is, why is it that we have fallen so enamored with one particular preacher? It is because we are growing up on the, the blessing as well as the curse of technology. Our attention span and our ability to listen critically is being shaped by this little device that buzzes and vibrates in our pocket and is constantly hammering us with notifications and pop-ups such that our attention span is slowly being destroyed. Now, you may say, I can pay attention just fine. You don't really understand the way that your mind works in terms of the neurons and the way that certain synaptic pathways are reinforced. Your brain actually learns how to function in a short attention span moment, but you're supposed to grow in your ability to learn how to sustain extended complex thinking. And in order to do that, you need to remove distractions. And whichever behavior you engage in more, whether it's long-term extended complex thinking, or whether it's short-term 25-second soundbite, you know, let me just get the snippet off of the news, every, you know, all of the things that are happening in our world today, all of it, including our cell phones, including the evening news reports, all of it is intended to appeal to short-term, distracted individuals, which means you're not being required to give extended, complex thought to things, which, interestingly enough, reinforces the synapses that you use for short-term quick thinking and further erodes and degrades your ability for extended, complex thinking. You're being shaped by your devices. If you look at news reports, 30-minute evening section, did you know that back in 1950, when Walter Cronkite and all these guys were first making their uh, debut on the evening news, the average evening news report was 15 minutes long? Do you know what the average evening news report is today? Two and a half minutes. They will go up to five minutes. I heard somebody say five minutes out there. But on average, your average news report on the evening news now is down to two and a half minutes from a high of 17 and a half in 1950. When asked why, producers were posed this question, why are you shrinking your news report down to just two and a half minutes from 17 and a half minutes? The response was, people tune out at the three minute mark. Why is that? And the news reporters can be blamed, as well as Steve Jobs and Samsung and Google and all the rest. To wrestle with God's word will require complex thinking. Universities, libraries, and hospitals were not built over the last two millennia by people who had grown used to 30-second sound bites. Do you understand? Hospitals, universities, and libraries. Western civilization as we understand it today. Democratic principles. These things were not understood in 30-second sound bites. We must wrestle with God's word. I think one of the best pictures we have from God's word to capture this picture is Jacob wrestling with God. 
He's on his way back to rendezvous with Esau. And as he's on his way back to rendezvous with Esau, he gets word that Esau is coming for him. And they had left on bad terms previously, many, many years before. You'll recall Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright. Stolen is not really the right word. He had negotiated fair and square and ultimately deceived and manipulated his father into taking it from him. All that to say, the trickster is now coming back to, be, to, to have this encounter with Esau. And he sends all of his, his wives and his family and his livestock, he sends all of this ahead. And on the night before he is to meet Esau, he's laying down trying to get some sleep. And all of a sudden, in the text, we encounter there's a man there wrestling with Jacob. Where did this guy come from? The Bible doesn't say. Why are they wrestling? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Why doesn't Jacob just break off and say, hey, let's have a conversation. Let me make you a cup of tea. Why does Jacob continue to wrestle with this guy? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. At some point, the text alludes to the fact that Jacob becomes aware that he's wrestling with God. As my daughter would ask me, why is God wrestling with Jacob? I don't really know. The Bible doesn't say. And then the question is, well, as God wrestling with a man, couldn't, in the words of my daughter, couldn't, couldn't God just marvel, you know, power fist him and like, you know, beat him, like just power zap him with his hand and that just be the end of it? Well, yes, he could. So then why does he continue to hold back the full force of his ability as God and engage in this struggle? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. God says to Jacob, let me go. Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then God renames Jacob to Israel, which means you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. You say, wow, what a happy ending to a great story that makes no sense from the outset. (laughs) But you'll notice the conclusion is this. God touches Jacob's hip such that he walks with a limp for the rest of his days. The conclusion from the story is that Jacob wrestled with God. And in that wrestle, wrestling with God, it cost him something. The promise is you will be blessed. You have the blessing of God. You have been renamed. You are now called Israel. And then what do we learn of this man? He's got 12 sons. One, as far as he knows, up until his old age, gets eaten by wild animals, although he suspects that his other 11 boys did something nefarious. In the midst of unbelievable famine and hardship, he sends his other boys down to Egypt in order to buy some grain, and he says, be sure to come home, bring everybody home. When they come back, they're another kid short. Jacob, Israel, is beside himself with grief. At this point in his life, where is the blessing? Where is all the joy and the happiness that God said would be mine for having wrestled with him? And of course, you know the conclusion of the story. They all end up going down to Egypt. He receives back not only Benjamin, but he finds Joseph as well. All of his boys brought home. 
You think, wow, what a happy ending the story. But that's not the ending that he was promised. See, his father before him, his grandfather before him, Abraham, was told to look for a city not made with human hands. And he had left his home in order to venture into the wilderness. He'd left a city called Ur in order to live in a tent. And all these eventually died having never seen the promised city. But they still believed. And that's where we land today. We're called first and foremost to love God's word. God's word brings blessing. It is true. God's word, though, to fully understand it will require that we wrestle with it in order to fully understand it. We're called to wrestle. It brings stability to our faith. But ultimately, we are called to believe. The real stability is in this, knowing that God is in control, knowing that his purposes will be accomplished, whether we can see it or not. All too often, we like our cult of personality preacher, or we want that easily Bible devotional just to give us what we want. But what I want to challenge you with today, First Baptist Church, is to wrestle with the hard texts, to sink your teeth into the scripture of God's word, to look to him, not to your favorite pastor, not to your favorite devotional app but to look to God's word because you will not see all of those things that he promises to you in this life. But you will see him. You will see him in his word. As far as Jacob was concerned, as far as Isaac was concerned, as far as Abraham was concerned, They never saw the city, but they saw God. That is what faith is all about, walking with the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. And we know, Lord, that city comes. We know it comes because we know the one who promised that it would come. As we wrestle with all these things, Lord, we are pressured by the world around us. We are tempted to give in to those things that we can see because we keep looking for things that you have promised, though we can't see them. And we, over time, start to lose our confidence. We start to wrestle with our faith. We start to say, you know, I don't know. Where is the promise of all these things that he promised us? And through it all, you have called us to look at you. God, I pray that you would help us to wrestle with the things you say just because you were the one who said them. We want to be molded. We want to be formed. We want to be fashioned by what you say. But Lord, help us in wrestling with all of these texts to understand that we're not just being molded or fashioned or shaped. We're coming to have a relationship with you. Help us to desire that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.